So 1 Samuel 24, uh, we're going to do things a little different. And every time I say that, I like to just pause because Baptists, when they hear the word, let's do something different, they panic. So I'm just going to let the panic because you haven't had enough panic in the year 2020. By the way, we'd, I'd like to welcome you this Sunday morning, March the 2342nd. It is still March. I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, it is. So uh, uh, what we're going to do is uh, uh, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 24 this morning and this evening. It's not a typo in your bulletin. Um, uh, really what I want us to do is there's a lot going on in this chapter, but instead of dividing it a half or whatnot, we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning this evening. We're actually going to look at four points of application. There's just such a rich, rich chapter. And uh, as I was thinking about this morning, we may not get through the first point. So um, uh, you really want to come tonight uh, and maybe stay an extra 40 minutes. Uh, but with that, let's start First Demon 24. If you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks. And he came to the sheep folds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed, uh, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord and my king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you have hunt, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So my Lord 
So may the Lord reward you with good in what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, that the Lord, uh, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our our uh, hearts and our mouths and our ears and our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ, transformed by the gospel. May we learn to live by faith and patience, a gift that comes from you. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised in a house where tardiness was a big, big, big no-no. I believe that if you tell someone you're going to be there at 2, you had better arrive no later than 1.30, right? And by the way, if you're in Frankfurt and you have lunch at noon, you had better put your order in by 11.30. That's good advice. You need to write that down in the back of your Bible. If you go to another town, you may need to get another Bible because that may not be relevant there. I don't know. city swells during the weekday. But we are not a tardy family. Let me give you two examples of my parents of recent times. A few weeks ago, many of you all know my mother's been dealing with issues with her shoulder. I took her to the surgeon after her, her surgery, and she had to be there, I think it was 9 o'clock, something like that. It's an hour drive up to northern Kentucky where, where she was going, and I said, Mom, we just need to leave by 8 o'clock. She looked at me horrified, horrified. 8 o'clock? No, 8 o'clock at the latest we will leave. I said, okay, Mom. We left at like 7, 7.15. Let me tell you how this worked out. She got there so early, she had to go in, do all the paperwork, do all the nonsense you have to do because government. And, and still, with all of that, she left the doctor's office 12 minutes after she was originally supposed to be at the doctor's office. Before that, my father came up. He had a, uh, had a heart doctor's appointment, and uh, he, he left work. Now, Dad works at the airport in northern Kentucky. His heart doctor's here in Frankfurt. He left work because he's a workaholic, left there, had lunch with me, and still was there an hour early. He said, Dad, you've got plenty of time. Just, just come by the house, see the kids. No, no, I've got lots of things I need to do. I'll just show up early. Shows up there early. He was home by the time he was supposed to start his appointments. That's the way we McDonald's roll. We don't handle tardiness very well. But the truth is, we don't handle waiting very well. We, we don't wait. That, that, is, that is something that we wish Paul would have not have included in the fruits of the Spirit, and that's patience. We don't handle patience very well. And that is what makes this passage just a frustrating passage for me. Is that, is that the first thing we see of the four points of application we want to look at this morning and this evening is that we must learn to trust God's timing. Trust God's timing. And that is the part of the scene I just don't like. Don't you wish God was always early with what it is that we need? That's not the way God works. Now, to pick up where we left off last week, David is still on the run. Remember, David was nearly captured by Saul at the end of chapter 23. And at the last moment, God delivers David from Saul by sending the Philistines to attack the Israelites. And so Saul must go deal with them. And, but now Saul returns uh, uh, wanting to deal with his primary concern, that is David and his growing army. 
Now, little does Saul know that he chooses a cave that is, that, that, that is uh, hosting David and his army. And there is Saul there to relieve himself, and, and little does he know, David is right there in the shadows. I mean, the chances of this happening are, are astronomical. But upon seeing this golden opportunity, uh, David's men tells him, not, not to mention the reader is telling David, this is your chance. This is your chance. And let's be honest, most of the story of David thus far has been David running from Saul. It gets kind of tiresome, doesn't it? I mean, whenever, you know, we started this journey of David, you thought David and Goliath. That's the whole story. Every bit of it is battles and scenes, and it's all about war and love. That's the story of David. No, it's basically David running from one dude, <laughs> right? That's the beginning of the story. And it's all about David running from, from this one cat. And, and now we, along with the David's soldiers, are urging him to put this narrative to an end. God has clearly put him in, your, in this position so that you can slay your enemy, take his army, and take his throne. In fact, notice that the men use uh, Bible language to justify it. So the men of David said to him there, verse 4, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, quote, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, there's one problem with this quote from the military leaders. We have no evidence God had actually ever said this to David. It sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like something you'd read in the Bible. But it's not what God actually said to David. God has promised David that in due time, he would assume the throne. He would be king over Israel. Uh, but the circumstances are never really given to David, just the promise. And one would think that had God actually said this, the narrator would have included it in the narrative prior to this. So that we can, we can hyperlink back and say, see, God made the promise here. He's fulfilling it here. And David realizes, no, God didn't say that he would give uh, Saul to me in this way. And so what David does is he chooses a different path there in verse Five. It says, afterward, David's heart struck him uh, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And so instead of cutting off his head, David cuts off his robe, a corner of his robe. Now, this is not a, an insignificant event. To the modern reader, it's, it's bizarre. Like, like why, why would you do this? But to the ancient reader, this is, this is a very significant act of rebellion. First of all, let us talk about the significance uh, remember that joke about fall break. Um, but speaking of the, the significance of uh, a robe, the robe was a symbol of dress, royalty, and authority. Let, let me give you a few examples of this, just from 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 2, uh, while Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer a yearly sacrifice. Remember, Samuel is God's promise to Hannah. And she promised that if you give me a son, I'll dedicate him to the Lord. So each year, because he's a growing boy, she has to get him another robe, right? And she understands the significance of this robe in the position he now has. 
Likewise, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of, its, of his robe and it tore. It's a significant event in that chapter. This is the chapter where Samuel tells Saul, the Lord's anointing has left you as king over Israel. In chapter 18, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. We talked about this uh, back when we looked, we're in chapter 18. Uh, and uh, people read this verse the wrong way. But when you understand the significance of what Jonathan is doing here, it makes complete sense. He is saying the, the anointing of God as heir to throne has gone from me to you. Very significant event involving his robe. In, in 1 Samuel 28, this is the, the, the classic scene with the uh, witch, right? We'll get there, and I probably won't be able to answer any of your questions. Uh, he said to her, what is his appearance? He's speaking to the witch. And the witch says, an old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. It is because of that robe Saul knew this here is your boy Sammy. Again, it is the emphasis upon the robe. And this is just 1 Samuel. We can look outside of 1 Samuel for examples of this. And so the tearing of the robe, the purposeful tearing of Saul's robe, a royal robe that signified he was king, was an act of rebellion. And in this event, David signals that he will not only tear his robe, he will tear him from his throne. But instead of simply murdering a man when he is vulnerable, uh, as he was in the cave, David announces, I'd rather face you mano in mano. But what we, what we find is in verse 5 and 7, David ends up regretting making this decision. This is what's so striking about this story. He regrets this decision. We see it there in verse 5. His heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, that language is, is first of all, it's, it's surprising. Surprising to us as a reader, surprising to, to David's men. That, that David's conscience as a result is seared. He, he makes a decision that isn't as drastic as murder, uh, but rather he makes this decision. And then he, he realizes even that lesser decision is, was the wrong thing. Now, only one other place in the Bible where this phrase of David's heart striking him is found, and that is in 2 Samuel 24. It is in the context of David doing the census, right? And we'll cross that, Lord really, next year if we ever get to it, if, if 2020 ever ends. And David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. We'll talk about it then. It has to do with he's doing the senses and the motivation why he's doing the senses, probably attached to uh, the need for an army or whatnot. Um, what we need to see here, we'll have more to say about tonight. This is more than mere regrets, but a regret that leads him down a path towards repentance. He is convicted by God. He has done something wrong. And so David knows that when the Lord gives him the throne. It will not come by means of murder. And so notice the language there in verse 6. He has to explain to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So notice the word Lord, little l, means his king, right, master, uh, and then Yahweh's anointed. So the king, my Lord, is Yahweh's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Now, when you see the same word or words closely connected in Hebrew, that's for emphasis. Because you don't have underlined circles or post-it notes with arrows next to it. You don't have that in Hebrew. What you have is repetition. 
So David wants his people, his, his, his men to know, look, it's not right to attack and to murder the Lord's anointed. Now, this is consistent with David's philosophy. It's consistent with the Old Testament. Let me give you just a few examples here. In 26, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and still be guiltless. Well, you can't, right? If it is the Lord's anointed, you do not curse nor do you harm that individual. So long as Saul is king, in David's view, he is the Lord's anointed. And later on in chapter 26, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For Yahweh, the Lord, gave you into my hand today, and I will not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. In uh, 2 Samuel 1, David said to him, your blood will be on your head. Uh, uh, He's speaking to the guy who executed Saul and Jonathan. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So he's going to execute the guy that executed the Lord's anointed. Here's David as king. Finally got what it is he wants. And he still believes you do not attack the Lord's anointed. Uh, 2 Samuel 19, Abishai, the son of um, uh, Zeruiah, Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? This is consistent with the Bible. If he is the Lord's anointed, you, you should pray for him, not curse him. And so what David did, nearly did, haunts him. And what he actually did reflects the anger and impatience of his own heart. So in verses 8 to 15, David explains his actions and inaction to Saul personally. I just love this scene, right? I mean, you think about how bold this is. You've got a golden opportunity to put your enemy to death. You wait until he's done, walks out of the cave. You follow him out of the cave. Now you're exposed just to have a conversation. I mean, that is bold. <laughs> that, that, that is bold. It, it, it is the, the scenes we love in movies, isn't it? We were never in the interrogation room, uh, Batman and Joker are having that meeting, right? We love these scenes, don't we, for the three of you who appreciate that movie reference, right? This is the confrontation we, we really want to see. And what David does is explain why he did not take advantage of the opportunity he was given to kill Saul. And verses 16 to 22 is Saul's response. He immediately realizes that David has spared his life, something Saul would have never have done for David. That's significant for us to grasp, something we'll see uh, maybe this morning, if not this evening. What David does for Saul he knows that Saul would have never have done for David. And in verse 20, we get Saul's confession. Note note the language there in verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now, that confession of Saul is consistent with Jonathan's promise, if not prophecy, that he had made to David. In 2317, he says, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Well, it isn't until here in chapter 24 that Saul, the father, confesses it. See, David's caution proves to Saul that David is the greater man the one who is more worthy of the office that Saul now holds. Ultimately, David spares Saul's life because David is learning to trust in God's timing. He is learning to trust in God's timing. 
Scripture frequently portrays God from the human vantage point as delayed. Is that a nice way to put it? I've already confessed to you, we don't do tardiness in the McDonald's household. So delayed is a nice word for us McDonald's. Late is the word we prefer, right? Let me give you a few examples of how the Bible portrays God as purposefully, from a human perspective, as delayed. Habakkuk 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? By the way, you could Google it right now. Or use your Bible app right now and type in how long, and you'll be surprised how many of the biblical authors ask that very question. How long must we continue to wait for an answer from you? How long before justice will finally appear? How long before 2020 will actually end? How long must we go through this? Perhaps most famous is the story of Lazarus. Remember the story there in, in John chapter 11, right? Uh, now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus the Bethany, right? We're going to meet this guy, discover there's some, there's some connection with, with uh, Jesus there. So the sisters said to him, saying, the Lord, uh, he whom you love is ill. In verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, would you do this? Oh, someone you love is on their deathbed. Well... I'm on vacation. Can they wait a few days? I remember uh, in the middle of the night, it was at 1230 in, in the middle of the night. My beautiful bride wakes up. And she says, babe, my water just broke. We got to go. She gets up and I don't know what she did. My response was, OK. And I went back to sleep. This is a true story. I did not make this up. This is a true story. Now, let me defend myself because I'm a sinful human being that now feels like you're judging me. So let me defend myself. <laughs> you are judging me. No, you, you, you can't convince me otherwise. I, I suffered from migraines half since sixth grade, uh, ever since adolescence. And uh, I was on a medicine that knocked me out. And at 1230 that night, I mean, it had kicked in. I don't know what I was dreaming about, but it was more real than real life. I mean, I was knocked out. And so I vaguely remember her waking me up. But, but, but just, I, I just, I was asleep. Uh, so she had to come back in and wake me up again. Okay, right. And so, so we go. Well, that's funny because we would never do anything like that. But Jesus did. And notice how John writes the story. The one whom you love is dying. And Jesus does not respond as one we expect who loves Lazarus. He seems to do the opposite of what we expect. What about the story of Joseph in prison? He's waiting, he's waiting, and he's waiting. He gets his opportunity. He tells this guy, I'm going to trip your dream. Guess what? You're going to go hang out with the Pharaoh again. Hey, while you're there, tell Pharaoh to get me out of here. And what does the dude do? He forgets there was a guy named Joe down in the dungeon unjustly. So he has to wait, he has to wait, and he has to wait until Pharaoh gets a dream. And finally, the guy's like, oh yeah, there was this guy I met back in college. I was a little rougher those days. You should talk to him. He's waiting for years. What about Paul in prison in Acts 24? When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desired to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. How about that for justice? 
You're there because someone is trying to satisfy the voters. Paul's point there was to wait out. To wait and wait in prison. I love what David wrote in Psalm 69. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. The Bible over and over again is honest about this reality that perhaps even right now, the problem we have isn't with faith, it's with the waiting that faith requires. Story goes that a man, armed with a toolbox in hand, rang the doorbell. Person answered um, the door. And he said, good morning, I'm the plumber. You've called and need my assistance. He said, I didn't call any plumber. You didn't? Aren't you Mrs. Foster? She says, no, she moved away a year ago. Plumber says, well, how about that? They call a plumber claiming it's an emergency and then they move away. <laughs> in Frankfurt, we, is that a good state? I should have made that a state worker joke, shouldn't I? We're in Frankfurt. Let me try that again. A guy rings a bell armed with a, 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 a pen and, and, and a notepad, right, in a car that he doesn't own, but the taxpayers do. And he says, you rang? He says, no, that wasn't me. Aren't you Mrs. Foster? <laughs> this is funny to me. Just put up with it. He says, no, uh, Miss Foster lived here a year ago. Well, didn't Miss Foster call the department of whatever it is you, you work for? Well, no? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm, you get the joke. I just wanted to make fun of y'all. But spiritual impatience will lead to us taking our lives into our very hands, our futures and our, 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 what God has planned for us into our very hands. And maybe you're, you, you are where you want to be. Maybe God isn't saying to you today, no, what God is saying to you is not yet. And throughout the Bible, what it is we need to see is the conversion between faith on the one hand and patience on the other. To live by faith is to also to live with patience. Faith does not say, I believe, now give it to me now. Give it to me now. Rather, it requires us to patiently confess, I believe, regardless of how long, O Lord. I think I've told this story before, but you forget most, most of what I say anyway, so I'll tell you anyways. Um, Nine months before we got engaged, I told my, my now bride, then girlfriend, honey, by this date next year, you and I will be engaged. I promise by this date next year, we'll be engaged. Within the next 365 days. Well, that is just torture for, for young women, isn't it? That's just torture. It didn't help. I had already picked out a date and it was nine months away. It didn't help that throughout the year, I would pretend to to uh, uh, ask her to marry me, right? Um, I th I've told you this. I do know I've told you this story before. One of our former youth ministers had been a student of mine. And uh, we were at Fazoli's right over here. I, I was uh, ministry anointed. We were at Fazoli's, had gone bowling or something with the students. And uh, uh, this, all the students were kind of gathering around as we were getting ready to leave. And uh, I had got on one knee, held my, my bride in hand, looked her in the eyes, and I remember all the youth really just gathered. And, and, and Dustin, our former student minister here, says, I knew he'd ask her to marry him with us around. 
that was wrong. <laughs> I was about to do that at all. <laughs> I don't know why people do that, right? I do not want video or pictures that it happened, right? <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> I want a piece of paper that said she did. Okay, that's all I want, right? And so they're all getting excited. And I leaned over and I said, babe, I just wanted to ask you, will you help me get this quarter off the ground? I just <laughs> put that in my pocket, right? I did that to her all the time. All the time. And then I would ask, do you think I've even bought the ring yet? Uh, do you think it'll be tomorrow? When do you think it will be? And then the eve of what I asked her was February the 13th. We don't do Valentine's Day because Valentine's Day was created by Harmark who just wants more of your money. That's the only thing you're going to get from this entire sermon, I know. Amen. Oh, to be a young man again, so naive and full of hope. I'm going to remember this when you bring a girl here. Make sure he loves Valentine's Day. Make sure he goes all out for you. Um, but I asked her on Valentine's Day, and I told her it would be a day you don't expect. And on the eve of our engagement, I said, babe, I'm going to ask you to marry me tomorrow. And she was tired of me making these jokes. Little did she know I actually did it. But this is typical of the Bible, isn't it? On the one hand, we can believe the truth. But are we willing to see the truth be realized? Are we willing to wait for that moment? Hebrews 11, we, we know the faith chapter well, right? Noah did this. and look With his faith, God did great things. Abraham believed and God did awesome things. But then there's this end. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised in this life. Since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made. Here's what he's saying is, look, sometimes waiting will, will take us beyond this life. God has promised you things you will not experience in this life because this world is unworthy of it. Are you willing to live by faith to the point of seeing Christ face to face? You see, you cannot separate faith from patience. And maybe this is where you are right now. Your presence here suggests you do indeed believe, but is the uncertainty and impatience that is haunting you. I believe God can save my marriage, but it seems as if things continue to get much worse. How long, O oh Lord, must I wait? I believe God will save my children, but they show no evidence of faith. How long must I wait, O oh Lord? I believe that God can heal my family, but we still barely talk to one another. How long, O oh Lord, must I continue to wait? I believe God can meet my needs, but the bills continue to stack up around me. How long Lord, I believe God will send a great revival. But society continues to spiral out of control. How long, oh Lord? I think we can take a lesson from Gandalf the Grey from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Remember what he told Frodo at the beginning? A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. The same could be said of Christ, couldn't it? When he arrived in Bethany, there, after he delayed to heal Lazarus, what did he find? He found weeping sisters 
weeping family members and a crowd at the local funeral home lined up to mourn with the family. But what is it that Jesus tells them? He says, though you weep, you need to know he's not dead. He's not dead. And by that he says, I'm never late. I'm never early. I arrive precisely when I intend to. Lazarus, come forth. Now you know the power of God. I don't know if the cool kids do this anymore. I hope not because it annoyed me then, but I don't keep up with pop culture very much. But back in my day, which is getting longer and longer ago, people would take celebrity couples take their names, and put them together. Do you remember that? We don't do that anymore, do we? Yes, they do. Oh, lie to me and say we don't. Just, just go ahead and lie. God will forgive you. <laughs> just please tell me we don't do this. So there was, if I get it right, Angelina was one. Was that one? So, so some of you who need to get off your, your phones can, can verify. Um, there, there was a... We watched the show. It, it, it had a love triangle because you had to keep the female audience engaged. And so, so they, you had to decide were you team this or team that, and they merged the names. That is so annoying. Stop that, please. Stop it. But the idea of it was when you put these two people together, this is what you get. The idea was these two are inseparable. Maybe... Just one time today, we could do the same thing this morning. Just this one time. If faith is impossible without patience, and patience is impossible without faith, maybe we should merge them. Maybe what we should live by isn't just faith or just patience. Maybe we can try faithance. Maybe we can. But regardless, let us learn from David, demonstrated by Christ, to trust in God's timing. After all, isn't that the hope of the gospel? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's never late. He's never early. He arrives precisely when he intends to. Let's pray.